This episode of the Third Sector Podcast is sponsored by Ansvar. Ansvar protects more than 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Andy Ricketts. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. This week we'll be talking about social media burnout, how charity communication staff can protect themselves against the ever-degenerating environment of some social media platforms and make sure that they maintain a healthy work-life balance and get support at the highest levels. And later, we'll be joined by one of the authors of a new report into the state of UK philanthropy. But first, Andy, you were at Keir Starmer's big speech earlier this week about civil society. I was, yeah. And it wasn't just Keir Starmer who was there. Pro Bono Economics managed to get a whole host of shadow cabinet ministers in attendance. Quite the coup, I think, as the Labour Party, we're almost certainly in an election year, as everybody knows, and the Labour Party really making their pitch to the voluntary sector. It really felt like a sort of charm offensive, if you like, on charities in terms of Labour, really for the first time that I can remember going out and saying, okay, charity sector, we really value you here. You know, not since the days of the Blair government and before that administration came in, have we seen or heard rhetoric quite like this. So it was a very exciting day. Gosh, yeah. So back to the status quo of 25 years ago. (laughs) Yes, with the the caveat that things are very different on the domestic front and certainly on the financial front. Mm. And Keir Starmer made some really interesting points. I mean, he talked about this society of service. It's almost like this is his big idea. Uh, He referenced David Cameron's big society and how that didn't really pan out because of austerity. Now... Keir Starmer's Labour Party is promoting a a society of service where he wants charities to be very much involved with the development of policy around a decade of national renewal is what he's talking about. So he wants charities very much on board. And actually what, what he said was we're asking you to be involved as an invitation. They want the sector at the table to be involved in developing solutions to some of the most intractable problems in society. And it was a really great speech. It was thin on actual substance. The Society of Service probably wasn't really pinned down in terms of what that actually means. But he made it clear that he wants charities to be what he called an essential part of a decade of national renewal. And it's quite interesting because it reminded me very much of JFK's inaugural speech back in 1961, almost whatever it is 63 years to the day where he talked about ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country and it sort of felt a bit like that had echoes of that in the speech in terms of him wanting communities and individuals to be pulling together to help solve some of the most difficult problems in society he referenced specifically the problem of violence against women and how labor wants to halve instances of violence against women over the coming years. And he also touched on knife crime a little bit as well. So as you can probably imagine, there wasn't much in terms of actual granular detail, but 
he really set his stall out. Mm. And there were quite a few large charity leaders listening to him and to Lillian Greenwood and a bunch of other speakers as well. What was the general feeling after that? People feeling optimistic or is there any cynicism? I think after hearing what Starmer said, there was a lot of energy in the room. People are excited to be told, we want you to be an equal. Starmer in his speech referenced the fact that the Conservative Party, in his words, seemed to be going out of its way to antagonise and be in opposition to the voluntary sector. He wants to get it back on board. He said he wants to reset the relationship between government and the voluntary sector. And to be honest, that's very much what charities want to hear. And I think that in terms of the instant reaction, that was really well received. Of course, the questions will be around the detail. We've already mentioned that, what it's going to look like in practice. Lillian Greenwood, the Shadow Charity Minister, said that she's going to be holding a series of roundtables and meetings with charities where they're going to be developing a, a sort of a civil society strategy over the coming months. So it'd be very interesting to see how that looks as she kind of goes on her tour around the country. Oh, well, it all sounds very promising for the time being. So we watch and wait. Moving on to the next part of this episode, we're joined by our senior news reporter, Emily Hall, to talk about the occupational hazards of managing a charity's social media accounts. Emily, hello. You wrote a long read last week exploring how charities can protect against social media burnout. What did you find? Well, one thing that was clear was the sheer volume of risk factors that could lead to burnout. The pressure to be constantly online 24-7, combined with the dedication that charity staff generally have for their cause, is a perfect recipe for burnout. Then you have the harmful and sometimes hateful comments that can appear online. Whether you're monitoring the comms of an animal charity or a humanitarian aid organisation, criticism online is a common, if not expected, consequence of that job. Mm. We've all seen the knock-on effects from X, formerly Twitter's reduced content moderation, and the charity staff that I spoke with said they've seen a huge increase in harmful comments since those rules came into play. And then, on top of that, you have the fields that some of these staff are working in. They can often be exposed to really upsetting and sometimes quite violent content, and the pressure of distilling that information into clear, helpful information for followers can amplify that mental drain on the comms staff particularly for those who are working in emergency response organisations. Yeah, it sounds really heavy. And like you say, it's not necessarily content that is aimed at these people directly and, you know, unhelpful, nasty things that people are directing at that organisational account, although that does happen. And as you say, with the reduced moderation of X in the past year or so, that's going up and up. But how about mitigating that burnout you spoke to people from two three different charities and then a couple of communication specialists what were their thoughts on how charity managers can look after their staff who are at risk of social media burnout well there was a consensus from everyone I spoke to that prioritizing your own well-being as an employee is absolutely key So setting clear boundaries for yourself and your team, that helps to establish a safe environment and then allowing yourself to step away when things get a bit too much Mm. is really vital. And having a backup team who can step in when needed 
can help reduce the pressures on any one or a couple of individuals working in the charity. And then you also touched in the piece on how all of your interviewees, I think, really stress the importance of maintaining a healthy work-life balance and being able to switch off even when they are operating in an ever-changing news cycle. What, what do they have to say about that? Yes. So when I spoke to Nana Crawford, who is now at Marie Curie, having taken four years away from charity communications when she was formerly at the British Red Cross. So she took four years out because of burnout and because the pressure of monitoring these comments was was really hard. And the thing that she stressed first to me in the interview was take your annual leave Mm. and also find joy outside of your work. It seems like there was a consensus from everyone I spoke to that that is really, really important, particularly when you're working in quite a heavy cause area. So trying to find time to switch off from the news in your own personal time and also building that environment of psychological safety within your team as well so that everyone can share their feelings openly. Uh, One thing that Nana Crawford said was that when she was at the British Red Cross, they ran a therapy session, a psychotherapy session with their team. And she spoke about that experience in a very emotional way because it was a very heavy experience, but she said that really bonded them as a team, which I thought was really interesting. And there's plenty of mental health first aid courses and things that, that charities can look into as well. They're easily accessed online. So even if you don't have the budget to bring in a therapist for the team, there's still other ways that you can train people up so that they're able to help others in their team manage those feelings mm-hmm. when they arise. And one of the people I spoke to for the piece was Paulina Stashnik, Head of Communications for Women for Women International, and she's kindly agreed to join us now. Hi, Paulina. Hi, thank you both for having me. So you have first-hand experience of having to engage with difficult content at work, most recently in your monitoring of the Gaza conflict and previously in Afghanistan. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you dealt with that? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for the question. So as part of my role at Women for Women International, we are responsible for elevating the voices of women survivors of war and raising funds. And over the last couple of years, we have seen an increasing number of conflicts across the world. It was just a month after I stepped into this role in July of 2021 that the Taliban government took over in Afghanistan. So we immediately had to respond to that. We've been working in Afghanistan for over a decade and wanted to make sure that our channels were secure in terms of making sure we were protecting the security of our program participants, but of course, also that we were raising vital funds at that time as well. And over the course of the last couple of years, we've seen increasing number of conflicts, as you mentioned, in Israel and Palestine. At the moment, we've also been responding to the war in Ukraine. And through our Conflict Response Fund, we are very reactive to any conflicts that are erupting around the world. So it's a balance of making sure that our channels are trustworthy sources of information, that everything is unbiased and fact-checked, and also that we are elevating the voices of women and raising funds. So it's been a much different way of working over the last couple of years than it has I've been at Women from the International for almost eight years now, but in the last few years, it's become much more reactive to the events that are happening around the world. So that's 
absolutely impacted our, our social media strategy at the same time. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you've come in at a very heavy time in terms of just the, the context that women for women is working in. And I wondered on a personal level, both your own personal experience and also for your your wider team, how you manage that balancing act of being sufficiently informed about what's going on in the news. And this is a 24 hour news cycle and things are developing on the evenings and the weekends, of course, well outside of office hours versus being able to switch off during your personal time and sort of really making sure that you have those boundaries in place whilst knowing that you are doing your job effectively. So that's been a work in progress. And it's something that I think we're continuing to be mindful of because I think two things can be true at the same time is that you could be very passionate about your role and very committed. And I speak on behalf of everyone at Women from an International that we have such a dedicated team, but you also need to protect yourself. And as a leader of a team, I need to make sure that my team's mental health is also protected. So one way that I do that is, is by leading by example and demonstrating boundaries at work and saying that this is when I'm on social media and when I'm not. And one way that I used to do this actually is when I was walking my dog, which is kind of the time that I have for myself, I would listen to the news on those walks and just to kind of get the day started. But I've stopped doing that because I feel like it's just the lines start to become very blurred. And I leave that for office hours when I I check the news and I check Google alerts and just make sure that we're staying on top of any mentions that we're getting. So I think that's one way. I also think preparation is key and having that peace of mind, knowing that we have a crisis comms plan that is set in place. And I worked with my mentor, who I'm very lucky to work with, Zoe Amar, who founded Zoe Amar Digital. And she helped our team kind of do dry runs of simulations of what could potentially happen on our channels. So we worked together as a global team and we were able to go through that together in a safe and calm space and frame of mind. So now that I know that no matter what happens, we have this document to refer back to and everyone's clear on their ways, on the ways of working around that as well. So that definitely gives us confidence. That's brilliant to hear. I spoke with Zoe about that element of pre-planning and how important it is to have that crisis comms plan in place and sort of be prepared for the worst case scenario one thing she said to me was you're never prepared for a crisis until it happens Mm -hmm. so it seems like that pre-planning is very much key and it's interesting as well that you've been able to now start putting those boundaries in place for yourself personally and have that time when you're walking your dog just just to be your time and switching off from the news because that does seem like it's really really important especially when you're working in cause areas such as yours and you you mentioned your mentions and keeping track of those across your social channels and on google and stuff and i was wondering have you had much negative engagement you know Twitter X in particular seems to be becoming more and more of a cesspit as time goes on and people behave and interact in ways on these platforms that they never would in the most part in real life. And particularly when you're engaging on these issues, which are becoming increasingly politicized world events that are becoming increasingly politicized at home. Have you had many instances of sort of really negative engagement directed at women for women international and and how do you know 
the best way to respond? You know, obviously it's it's very fast moving, these conversations on social media. How do you make a call as to whether you're going to jump in and react straight away or really give yourself the time to reflect and think and work out whether you respond at all or and if you are going to, what the best response is going to be? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. And again, something that we've just been trying to iron out with, I think with every crisis, we get a little bit better at this, but there's always room for improvement and learning. One way that we make sure, I think a guiding light for us is balancing thoughtfulness with timeliness. And when you see these comments, especially when you feel so closely connected to the organization that you work for and represent, it almost feels, it feels quite personal. And I think that's the first step that you need to do is, is take a step back from it, take a breath and try to regain that kind of clarity of thinking. We also, before we put out any statements, we try to come together as a communications team globally and say, this is how we are going to be responding to comments. And this is the formats that will be responding to comments as well. So we have been seeing more comments around the current war between Israel and Palestine. And we are currently working with partners in the West Bank and in Gaza and in Israel as well, too. So we are anticipating that we'll continue to get comments around that as well, too, given how divisive the conflict is. But we are very committed to taking a lot of those conversations offline where we could have more nuanced conversations about our approach and and be able to email and not really have those conversations on social where things can be misconstrued and spiral quite quickly. Though we do take those comments into consideration. We use ChatGPT to kind of do an assessment of all the comments that we received over the last four months to look for trends. And that is informing our communication strategy going forward, because while they're not always the most pleasant to read, we do have to take them seriously and and make sure that we are addressing them in our next wave of communications as well. Mm, Super interesting. So you're using ChatGPT as a kind of filter is that right so that you you don't necessarily have to be reading as much vile content as you might otherwise yes as a, i think we still end up reading all of the comments but i think it's also for our leadership team and our board to be able to see these the trends and to see it from a really objective point of view i know it's not a perfect tool but to because again there are so many opinions about the situation all across the board i think we really need to try to distill it into this is what a machine is telling us is happening. So how are we going to respond to it in still a human way, but using data as much as possible? That seems like a brilliant way to make sure you're actually engaging with some of the feedback because it seems like social media for all of its flaws can be a good litmus test of of where your organization is at. And on that, do you have any other top tips for social media managers who are looking for ways to look after their own mental health and also the mental health of the rest of their team? Going back to the preparation, I think having those documents together that you've regularly review as well, because I think sometimes you could kind of create a process and then kind of goes into a digital back drawer and you you don't come back to it. And I think reviewing that on a regular basis is really important, especially as you onboard new people. And so it feels like it's, it's a working document. I think 
seeking out support within the team as well too is really important. I think that as leaders, we need to balance being transparent with providing that sense of stability. But I think it's really important that you show your vulnerability as a leader as well too and say, this is impacting me on the human level. I'm not a robot either. I don't expect you to be a robot and not be affected by these comments. So creating that sense, that safe space for your team to be able to come together and express how they feel is really important. And I also think it's also important to focus on positive stories as well. For Women's History Month, we have a campaign coming up called She Dares, which is all about women being defiant and powerful and brave and those stories are just as important to highlight as the cases for support. And you also need to bear your audience in mind as well, that they need that positive content from you as well. So I think being able to balance that is, is really important. Brilliant. Some really great pointers there. Paulina, thank you so much for joining us from Women for Women International. And thanks also to Emily. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And now for something completely different. The think tank Onward has just published a new study into the state of UK philanthropy. It finds that we are significantly lagging behind the US in this area and recommends strong measures, including the development of a national philanthropy strategy and the automation of gift aid, which could help increase charitable donations by more than half a billion pounds a year. We're pleased to be joined in the studio by Shivani Menon, a senior researcher at Onward, who is the lead author of the Giving Back Better report. Hello, Shivani, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, your report talks about the state of UK philanthropy. It does seem to be in a bit of a sorry state, though. So what our report found is that over time, millionaires and billionaires in the UK have been donating more in absolute terms. But hidden behind the data are some secret trends, the first being that Proportionately, they are donating less than the poorest 10% of households. And in real number terms, that's about lost charitable donations of £3.4 billion. They are also donating proportionately less relative to the growth of their own income and wealth. Um, Too few wealthy donors are participating in philanthropy. Within the donations from the highest earning 1%, we see that half of donations come from less than 5% of that group. And we also see that they're donating to a narrower set of places of the largest philanthropic foundations in the UK. Over a third of all donations are still received into London. Wow. So not much for the rest of the country. Unfortunately not, no. And did you get much insight into why we're in this fairly sorry situation. And as Andy mentioned in in his introduction, we're really lagging behind the US. So I think the comparison to the US is in many ways a bit of a false comparison. They operate a bit of a different social contract. They see different levels of reliance on state and non-state services. But where I think as a country we do have to learn from America is in its incentives and its institutions that empower philanthropy. British incentives are weak and its institutions quite heavily underpowered. So gift aid, for example, the most popular financial incentive for philanthropy is extensively underused. About £564 million goes unclaimed by charities every year in gift aid match funding. Um, It's also not used by donors. Over two thirds of high net worth donors don't claim their rebate. 
Mm. And this stems from its complexity. It's a multi-step process that donors frequently don't engage with. It's also about the institutions that empower philanthropy. So donors very rarely make these decisions on their own. They're assisted by a group of advisors, but only one in five professional advice firms actually offer advice on philanthropy. And research shows that you actually need 23 different services to provide philanthropy advice, a combination of tax, accounting, legal, impact measurement, identifying charities. Um, It's very complicated and very few wealth advice firms actually offer these services. You talked about gift aid there. Obviously, it is already worth huge amounts to charities, but it's obviously not working in terms of incentivizing the richer people to give. What specifically can be done to address that? I think the gift aid system, its biggest problem is how complex it is and automating it from making it from a two-step process into a one-step process would both increase funding into charities and incentivize donors to donate more. The way to do that is for HMRC to opt into a technology called SwiftAid that enables donors at a point of donation to also claim their rebate. So this means that charities receive not just the donation from the donor, but also the top up they're eligible for and donors get their rebate at the same time. And then you mentioned a third of all funds come into London, leaving what's known as charity deserts. Some of the most deprived parts of the country are not receiving the levels of support that they truly need. Do you have any recommendations on how to ensure that the funding reaches those areas? We call for a series of networks called charitable action zones. These are geographically targeted zones that become eligible for an extra pot of funding that's the philanthropy match. So donations made into these places would be matched by based on levels of need by government. And this would help make sure that areas that see a deficit of charitable activity actually receive philanthropic funding. And we ask for these zones to be accompanied by capacity building training, because these places are also likely to require help and training to make sure that they're able to raise their share of the match in the first place. We mentioned in the introduction that one of the things the report calls for is the development of a national philanthropy strategy. Could you talk a little bit about how that might look? Happy to. The problem with philanthropy in government right now is that responsibility is split across multiple departments. You have the Charity Commission, that's the regulator. You have DCMS that runs a lot of the place-based giving schemes and revenue and customs and treasury that manage the tax. These departments need to come together to work collaboratively towards identifying what the UK's priorities in philanthropy are. Do we want to set a mandate for doubling donations over the next decade, identifying what we need to do that and the different local, regional and national partners that need to work together? And these are the different elements that need to come under a national philanthropy strategy. So we call for a cross-departmental approach that is led by an external appointment of a philanthropy champion. And... You've been working on this research for quite some time. I know we've been in contact for at least six months and you were talking about it last summer. You had a big launch event yesterday, bringing together people from all different parts of this puzzle. How optimistic are you that in the current climate, these recommendations are going to be carried forward and that you're going to get the philanthropy strategy and that essentially change is going to come to improve the state of philanthropy in this country? 
quite optimistic, actually. We've had great engagement from government. The Secretary of State offered some brilliant remarks at our launch event. So we can see the DCMS is really making this one of their priorities. Even recent months, um, the Charity Commission has made philanthropy a big part of their mandate. We've heard some very positive remarks from Orlando Fraser. So I'm really optimistic that the different departments are working together to understand the value that philanthropy brings to the, the charity sector. The report also talks about the Financial Conduct Authority working with independent financial advisors to try to get them to promote philanthropy among the wealthier people. How would you envisage that working? I think the way forward for that would be for the FCA to make philanthropy a mandatory part of the training they provide advisors. That's currently a big gap in how they're trained. This would help them identify the economic value in actually providing advice on philanthropy to their clients. The sector suffers from very high rates of client attrition and philanthropy is a great way to hold on to your clients. It's a conversation that's very personal, very emotional, often involves other members of the family as well. And it's they have strong economic value in promoting philanthropy and that's what the training would achieve. We've been throwing around some big numbers as well while you've been talking. If we were able to bring in these changes, what kind of difference would it make to the UK charitable sector financially, do you think? To the charitable sector, I think it would lead to significantly higher levels of funding. We saw that from automating gift aid alone, we're expecting to see about £520 million extra from bridging the the gap between the poorest 10% and the wealthiest 10%, we see there's potential for about £3.4 billion. So a lot of funding coming in for charities. But it's also not just about the funding. It's about the expertise that philanthropists bring. Often they bring in their business expertise from running commercial ventures to the not-for-profit sector, which is very valuable. They bring in networks of their peers that might also engage. These are things that are non-monetary but very valuable to the third sector. So a combination of financial and non-financial benefits. Brilliant. Well, Shivani, thanks so much for coming in to tell us about this research. And we will include a link to the report in the show notes to this episode. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about how our use of language can encourage and deter access to charitable services. Please do join us for that. But for now, thanks to our guests today, Paulina and Shivani, and our producer, Navpal.